Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Today, we are continuing our series on suicide risk prevention in the workplace, recognizing the increased risk for first responders and frontline workers, particularly at this stage in the pandemic and the ongoing exposure you're facing on the front lines to cumulative factors. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I'm going to suggest that you jump back to episode one of season two and start there. Suicide tends to be a hard topic to talk about. You may interact with suicide in patients or on calls or with those you serve at your work on a semi-regular basis, but that tends to feel different than what we experience when we become aware of a coworker suicide or attempt. It feels differently close to home when it's one of our own. And we can feel the discomfort of how that seems to reflect something on us about our own risk and vulnerability to the impact of the work. Today, I want to address the fear related to suicide, the elephant in the room. It's this thing that when it happens, a lot of workplaces just skirt around it, paying their respects, and then getting back to normal as quickly as possible. I've talked to so many people about this and consistently what I hear is this, we're afraid of naming it because naming it makes it real. And if it's real, we might discover that we can't handle it. And what would happen then? The wheels would fall off. It would all fall apart. We might fall apart and we can't risk that. So we keep the elephant in the corner, acting as if it's not there because that somehow seems safer. Meanwhile, people are dying. People you know, people who you share something in common with. So is it really safer? Research is showing that more first responders are dying by suicide than in the line of duty. A study and resulting white paper report by the Ruderman Family Foundation in the US gives a good glimpse at the problem. It reports that PTSD and depression rates in police officers and firefighters is nearly five times the rate of the civilian population, and that as a result, the rate of suicide is also substantially higher. The paper also mentions that in the U.S., only 3 to 5% of law enforcement agencies have access to suicide prevention training. The stat for mental health concerns for paramedics have been shown in recent research to also be very high, One study citing that up to 22% of all paramedics will develop PTSD. The stats are also brutal for corrections officers and is similarly high for nurses. 
While less researched and represented in media, it seems likely that suicide rates for social workers and frontline community mental health and addictions workers are also greater than the national averages. When I was sitting down to prepare for this episode, the detail that struck me the hardest was one I mentioned a second ago from the Ruderman Foundation White Pages report, that in the US, only three to 5% of all law enforcement agencies have access to suicide prevention training. Given the rate at which people are dying, it seems shocking to me that there isn't more available. I'm also aware that some of the suicide prevention trainings that do exist for first responders and frontline workers in the workplace focus on prevention and intervention from a professional standpoint, preparing you to be an effective intervener as a patient or inmate or subject or client shows risk for suicide. But this isn't the same as knowing our own risks and seeing the signs in those we're partnering with or working alongside day in and day out. So what can we do? Well, it starts by doing the very hard thing of calling out the big, fat, stinking elephant. Putting it in the corner isn't helping anybody, and it may actually be putting everyone at higher risk. We can't change problems that we can't identify. Naming the issue is the biggest step we can take toward making it different. Next, we need to help other people name it too. One of the most significant barriers to seeking support around mental health concerns and suicide risk is, you guessed it, stigma. We fear that people will judge us, think less of us, be afraid of us, reject us, or a host of other fears. We need to work at cultivating conversations that help people know that we are safe to talk with and work to build safe communities within our workplaces. Yes, even when, or actually especially when, the overarching workplace dynamic is hostile or dysfunctional. Bringing up mental health and suicide can be uncomfortable, but the more you do it, the more normal it becomes. And modeling this gives permission for others to do the same. It sets an example that we can grow more openness and gesture care for each other by bringing up the hard topics. There's this funny belief or myth out there that bringing up suicide with someone who seems to be struggling might push them toward suicide. Like if they weren't already thinking about it, maybe me asking will plant the idea in their mind and make them think that I think their life is so terrible that they should probably want to die. This is not a real risk and has been debunked in the research over and over again. The truth is asking the question shows you care to ask a hard question. It shows someone who might be struggling to feel worthwhile that they are worth it enough for you to be uncomfortable asking about their safety and their needs. Talking about suicide does not increase suicide risk. It opens the issue to allow people who might be headed in that direction to feel seen, heard, known, and valued, resulting in less risk, not more. Knowing what variables tend to increase risk for suicide can be valuable as you assess yourself and the risk of those around you. I actually created a workplace handout around suicide prevention a while back, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It offers a good quick reference guide to prompt you through what pieces to look for, questions to ask, and steps to take. Search Behind the Line Lindsay, and then go to our podcast page to access the show notes to snag this resource. Some of the key pieces to look for include any mental health concerns, including burnout, 
vicarious trauma, PTSD, depression, anxiety, paranoia, and substance misuse. While these may not lead directly to suicide, they certainly increase the risk, and some of these can increase impulsivity and reduce executive functioning, meaning that we do without thinking and decision-making is compromised. We can also be on the lookout for general life challenges or changes, stress related to finances, housing, close personal relationships, losses, etc., can create the accumulation of stressors that lead people to feel helpless, hopeless, and stuck. Getting to know people and their background can also be a window in to the degree of risk. Is there a history of mental health concerns in their family? Has the person experienced mental health concerns in other times of their life? Has the person known anyone who has committed suicide? Have they ever experienced previous suicidal ideation or made an attempt? We may not get into knowing our coworkers closely enough to glean this kind of information, but knowing what to listen for and asking key questions can give us some glimpses that can help shape a picture of the level of risk. This is also information we can keep in mind as it has to do with your own risk. Once we name it and create space for others to name it too, we need to work on knowing what to do with it. Where do we go? Where do we point people? How do we bridge from a place of helpless and hopeless to something else? The truth is there are a lot of barriers to support. Stigma is among them, but not the only factor that limits people from connecting with the support they need to find a way out of the dark holes we can feel caught in. For many, the cumulative stress that leads to mental health concerns that then dig us into the dark hole leaves us without the energy or the sense of resources to be able to seek out the support we need or the energy to access it, even if we know where to go and what to do. On top of that, resources themselves can be few and far between. Particularly right now, we are facing a practical shortage in accessibility to physicians, psychiatrists, counselors, mental health programs, and so on. In our own clinic, we've seen our prospective client intake emails nearly double month over month since early this year as a result of the ongoing pandemic and related stress and anxiety. The reality is it can be hard to find professional support with availability, often facing really long wait lists, and it can be challenging to find someone who feels like the right fit. There can also be practical barriers like finances, transport, childcare, hours of availability, clashing with your shift schedules, and things like that. It can make the complexity of getting help so much harder in reality than it might seem like to an outsider of the situation. So when we're faced with all of these barriers, how do we circumnavigate them? Well, let's start by acknowledging that it tends to be easier with help. Finding the energy to traverse these many hurdles when already feeling caught in the dark hole place can feel insurmountable. Having close people offer to help make phone calls, bridge to supports, and get a foot in the door can be a huge help. These gestures of practical support, while valuable in scaffolding to professional support, is actually even more valuable in gesturing care to someone who feels hopeless. It becomes emblematic of the hope that continues to exist in the world, and this can mean more than you know to someone who's caught in it. If it's you that's caught in the dark hole, while I know that it can feel impossibly difficult, reach out and let someone in your life know that you're struggling. 
If you can, be clear about what kind of help you would find helpful. What can they do to meaningfully support where you are at right now? Let's remember that more often than not, people aren't committing suicide because they want to die. More often than not, people are committing suicide because they can't see a way out of the dark hole. They feel like death is the only way to escape how complicated, hard, and hurtful the world can be. Or they feel like death is the one thing they can control in a life that feels too far out of control to rein in. The common tale of suicide is despair, disconnection, helplessness, and hopelessness. When we see this story being lived out in someone we know or in ourselves, what's the need? The need is hope. The need is to feel empowered in our lives. The need is connection and care. The need is to be seen, heard, known, and valued. The need is practical sometimes, digging out of tangible constraints that feel like they can drown people. Support navigating bankruptcy, divorce, the loss of a loved one, and so on. The need is to have others show up to fight alongside, offering the glimmer of hope that I'm not alone in the battle. There are all kinds of ways we can work to support needs like this alongside one another. We can extend time and energy if we have it to offer to help connect resources and offer care. We can help dig up names and numbers for additional support people who could help pivot the situation, whether that's a counselor or a psychiatrist or a financial planner or the local community law program. Our workplaces, if they're willing to be a space that really wanted to care well for their people, could keep updated referral lists and resource handouts that offer meaningful and time-sensitive access to support. To some extent, aspects of these already exist in many workplaces. The challenge is the stigma to go and access them. This is why we have to start with opening the conversations, naming the elephant, and building workplace cultures where these conversations are commonplace and not only allowed, but highly valued and welcomed. Most communities have listings of resources. I've included a link in the show notes to some that you may find helpful. For those who are listening who live in BC, I would also encourage you to reach out to our clinic, Thrive Life Counseling and Wellness. Our clinicians specialize in diverse areas of practice and offer both in-person support as well as online sessions for those living not in the Lower Mainland. We also have reduced cost services available to those who are not covered for counseling through your benefits or for whom benefits are really limited, like many social workers or casual paramedics. Our clinic works to be a referral resource to other clinics in the area. So if we don't have someone who does the work a prospective client is needing, we work really hard to connect that person with the right resources in the area. You can reach our clinic at info at thrive-life.ca or check us out online at thrive-life.ca. As always, know that you can also reach out and connect with me on social media at Lindsay A. Foss, or by emailing me at support at thrive-life.ca. I will always work to connect and offer support and connection to other resources where I can. I always love hearing from you and value those who reach out to share their stories. I know this series may bring things up for some listeners and that there may be feedback you'd like to share. Please know that I welcome your thoughts and feedback as we navigate this series together. We're going to come back next week to talk more about the aftermath of a coworker suicide. 
what it means to grieve, how we carry on in the work, and how we hold the legacy of those lost as part of our own stories moving forward without letting them sink us. I hope you'll join me and that you'll share this series and this podcast resource with those in your sphere of influence who are in the thick of frontline life alongside you. Until next time, stay safe.